You may be seated. It's good to sing about God's grace, isn't it? Well, now let's go to God's Word and learn about His grace. We'll be reading a passage of Scripture, so take your Bibles, your iPads, your iPhones, and turn to or scroll to Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8. But before we read that passage of Scripture, I want to let you know that I recently repainted my family room. And it's just amazing to me that as I look at that freshly painted room, and then we have pictures of what the room looked like before, I am just astonished at the notable difference. And the difference is a result of paint. Well, think about this. When a Christian is converted by the grace of Jesus Christ, oh my, what a difference that grace makes from the way he or she was before and the way that they are now in Christ. And so today we want to focus on the difference that grace makes in the life of a believer. And we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8, which this passage is about many things. We can go in many different directions. But today I just simply want to look at this in the in the context of thinking about the difference in Isaiah's life when that seraphim took that coal and pressed it upon his mouth. Please turn to Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 and read along with me as I read aloud. Now the word of God. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. The word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the soul. And may God's word revive our souls today. Let us pray. God, our Father, as we come to this particular aspect of living the Christian life, grace, I would ask, O oh Father, that as many times as we've thought about grace and experienced grace, that, that this passage and this encouragement today might come upon us as if we just first heard it, that you would be so kind and gracious to truly revive our souls with a fresh 
understanding and appreciation of your grace that really does make all the difference in the world. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our theme today in, this ser- in today's message as part of this sermon series, The Journey, The Journey of the Christian Life, is simply this. Every Christian has a testimony of God's uh, grace. We've been following the progress of Christian and hopeful here of late as they journey to the celestial city in Bunyan's great work, The Pilgrim's uh, Progress. Remember last week they were at the delectable mountains and they enjoyed a Sabbath's rest there. And just after they were taken to the hill called Clear, were able to see a, a glimpse of the end of the journey, the gate into the celestial city, the shepherds warned them about some of the dangers that they yet face on the remainder of their journey. And they set out, and sure enough, they encountered a number of individuals that posed danger to them. And maybe you've met some of these fellows as you've been progressing along the journey of the Christian life. Have you met ignorant? I hope you don't say yes in in light of meeting me. Well, ignorance trusted his own brand of religion as Christian and hopeful discovered. He was ignorant of his need uh, for uh, Christ. And then there was the fellow Turnaway. Turnaway is one who really had a good start. In fact, he looked like a Christian, and everybody assumed that he was a Christian, but at some point, he was found actually to not be converted at all, and he fell away. He became apostate. And then there's the fellow Little Faith. And Little Faith's kind of interesting because Little Faith is a true believer. Little Faith is going to make it to the celestial city, but because he is weak in his faith, because he is so easily swayed by the things of this world and unprepared spiritually, he misses out on so much of the blessing of living the Christian life. And then another fellow that you might have met is Flatterer, as Christian and Hopeful were enticed to once again go on a different way, and they were actually taken by Flatterer in the opposite direction, away from the celestial city, and wound up in a net. Maybe you've encountered those who are smooth talkers about all things religious, but are actually deceivers. And so they were disciplined as God rescued them from the net and put them back on the king's highway. And wouldn't you know, they encounter another fellow, and his name is Atheist. Have you run across an atheist in your journey? And of course, atheists ridicule Christian and hopeful for their faith in Christ and being on the journey. Well, they made it through and made it past atheist, and they come to the enchanted ground. And as they came to this enchanted ground, hopeful becomes very drowsy. And this represents a place in Bunyan's story where the Christian life becomes easy. Everything seems to be going our way. We don't have any particular uh, 
sin struggles. And yet, this can be one of the most dangerous uh, places uh, for a believer. We can be so easily lulled into complacency, napping spiritually. We can fail to see the importance of being watchful and living by faith. Now, I go through this little synopsis of where Christian and Hopeful have been since leaving the Delectable Mountain because as they are struggling with journeying there on the enchanted ground, trying not to fall asleep, Christian has the idea to begin a discourse. He calls it a good discourse that might keep them awake. And Hopeful agrees, great idea. And so Christian says, where shall we begin? And Hopeful says, well, let's begin where God begins uh, with us. And then Christian asks, how came you to think at first of doing what you do now? Let me translate that. How did you come to the place of where you are concerned about your spiritual life? And then Hopeful says, do you mean, how came I at first to look after the good of my soul? Now, I want to help us see exactly what's going on here by giving an illustration. One of the greatest blessings I have along with my fellow elders who are on the session is to interview people for membership at Covenant. And one of the things we ask them is, please share with us your profession of faith in Christ. Tell us about your conversion experience. And it is absolutely a blessing to hear how God has worked in other people's lives to bring them to that place of conversion and then beyond as they journey now as a Christian. And what's interesting to me is that people's stories are incredibly different. Different circumstances. But there's one thing that is similar. You know what it is? Grace. We often hear something like this. Tell me. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And the answer oftentimes is something like, I don't deserve to get into heaven. But I will get in only because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And God has given me the gifts of repentance and faith. In other words, the difference is grace. And the session really asks candidates the same question that is being discussed in Pilgrim's Progress. Tell me your story, Hopeful. Tell me about when God began with you as he brought you to that place of conversion. How did you get there? What happened there? And how are you living now in light of it before conversion after, which happens to be our sermon outline uh, today. And in every case, what's at the very center of these stories is grace. So every Christian has a testimony of God's grace. 
And like hopeful, he began with a before conversion experience. As we, as we just go to Bunyan's story, I'll just read a brief statement. Hopeful describes his life before he was converted in this way. For a long time, I was excited about material things that were on display and sold at our fair. All the treasures and riches of the world. Also, I enjoyed rioting, reveling, drinking, swearing, lying, uncleannesses, Sabbath breaking, and other things that tend to destroy the soul. And so that's a picture of hopefuls before uh, conversion. And <laughs> he was a really bad sinner. I mean, vile. Think about that. For those of us who were converted as adults, I mean, we have a before, don't we? And I doubt your before was, was like hopeful, just a vile, just a notorious sinner. If you were converted as an adult, probably your before is, is that of a respectful sinner, right? A nice uh, sinner, not, not that vile, not as bad as hopeful, right? But if you think about it, ignorance whom Christian and hopeful met he really was seeking to enter the celestial city according to a religion that was of his own uh, making and likely he was viewed by others as a very moral and righteous individual but at the very core of his being he was rotten to the core just as bad as hopeful in his notorious life before uh, conversion. Ignorance was ignorant of his need for Jesus to get into heaven, and he was solely given to a works-based religion, though outwardly he probably looked like a really good guy. And so here's my point that the before conversion picture, be it a notorious sinner, bad like hopeful or a respectful sinner, someone who looks really okay on the outside like ignorance, the fact of the matter is all sinners are dead in their trespasses and sin, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, and were by nature children of wrath. And so in Isaiah's vision that, that I read just earlier, in verse 5, the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Paul, Isaiah, calls down judgment upon himself. He says, woe is me. And what's really interesting about this, now Isaiah is a prophet, and Isaiah is going to call down woe more times in the future. But this is the first time he calls down woe, and he calls it down upon himself. In other words, Isaiah views himself, apart from God's grace, as a sinner under judgment deserving death. And so this first point, before conversion, the sinner's condition is fatal, for they are under judgment. But now, by God's grace, he does convert. And let's look at that. Earlier... In Bunyan's story, Hopeful told 
faithful, or I'm, I'm sorry, um, faithful said uh, to hopeful. And remember, faithful actually was a faithful Christian who, who was martyred at Vanity Fair because he stood firm in his relationship with Christ. And so faithful said to hopeful before his death, unless you obtain the righteousness of a man that had never sinned, that neither your own nor all the righteousness in the world will save you. And the good news is that hopeful, as bad as he was before, was ultimately brought to a place where he was able to affirm that what faithful had spoken sometime earlier was actually true and a reality in his life. The light of the gospel began to convict hopeful as he says. He was able to see his sin. He was able to feel the condemnation brought by his sin. He was able to say that even his righteous actions were filthy rags. It is the revelation of Christ, professed hopeful, that forced me to see that the whole world, even all its righteousness, is in a state of condemnation. It made me see that God the Father, although he is just, can justly justify the sinner who comes to him. It made me feel ashamed for the vileness of my formal life and puzzled me because of my ignorance. Hopeful begins to see the saving and converting grace of God operate in his life. Isaiah experienced conviction in that sixth chapter, verses one through four. Isaiah was able to behold the holiness of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God as he was able to gaze in to that throne room where God sat on his throne high and lifted up, where the train of his robe filled the entire room, the temple. We find that the, the seraphim, these angelic beings, they are so humble, they're covering their eyes and their feet, and they're flying around, singing, serving God in worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then verse 4, even the, and this is interesting, it's not the thresholds that shake, but the very foundations of the threshold. Probably one of the most solid parts of the entire building that even that is shaking because of the presence and power of God Almighty. Smoke fills the room. And we think about the Shekinah glory cloud that settles upon the tabernacle there when the people of God were in the wilderness. And this whole vision just struck terror and godly fear into Isaiah, he saw God Almighty in all of his majesty, glory, and holiness. Isaiah's vision of God's holiness operated in such a way where Isaiah was able to see, compared to God, he was able to see just how sinful that he actually was, just how much he deserved God's judgment to be poured out 
upon him. So no wonder Isaiah in verse 5 calls down judgment upon himself. Woe is me. He confesses, I am a man of unclean lips. And it's interesting that, that this phrase, unclean lips, obviously functions to represent the totality of Isaiah's sinful state. It represents just how much a sinner he really is. And left in that state, he or anyone else could not survive being in the presence of such a holy God. But in verses 6 through 7, God acted. He did not leave Isaiah in that, that state of woe is me. God's grace made all the difference. The seraphim took that burning hot cold and pressed it upon Isaiah's lips. And the very thing that represented the totality of his sin is now dealt with definitively. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Remember at the hill, that little hill that Christian finally made it to and there he found a cross and just below an empty sepulcher? Remember what happened there when he experienced the pardoning grace of Jesus Christ when the guilt of his sin was taken away? We recall 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. The grace of, of God in the atonement of Jesus Christ, that atoning work was poured out on Christian at the foot of the cross. And then there also we find Christian was stripped of his dirty, filthy rags and given new clothes that represent the imputed righteousness of Christ. And we remember Romans 3, 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Isaiah's experience is representative of God pouring out his saving and converted grace on sinners and dramatically changing their state. Bill read it. Because of grace, there is therefore now, what? No condemnation for all those who are in Christ. Jesus. We've been radically changed from a sinner to a saint, from a slave to a son, from someone dead in sin to alive in Christ forevermore. We've been changed from being under judgment to being under Christ, who has already taken all that judgment and wrath for us. We've been taken from being homeless to having a home in heaven. And we can just go on about the comparison that reflects the difference that grace makes in our life. Before, 
dead in sin, now by grace, alive in Christ, and it affects how we live, doesn't it? After conversion, Isaiah responded to God's gracious call. This is easy to miss, that little acknowledgement and resolve in verse 8. God, said, God has a mission. This is part of Isaiah's commissioning as, as a prophet. God has a mission. And he said, who is going to go for me? What has Isaiah said? There is no way in the world, and get this, no way in the world that before that seraphim took that burning hot coal from the altar and put it upon Isaiah's lips and cleansed him from his sin, there is no way in the world before that seminal event that Isaiah would have said to this holy God that frightened him, here I am, send me. No, Isaiah would run. I don't want to be seen by this holy God at all. But now because of grace, Isaiah is able to stand up and boldly say, here am I, send me. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is, because of your grace, God, I want to live for you. I want to obey you. I want to honor you. I want to do your bidding. Listen, grace makes a difference, doesn't it? It not only makes a difference in our state, sinner to saint, it makes a difference in everything about how we live, even how we view life, and certainly how we view the future. Isaiah is now free to live. Isaiah is able to say, although Paul said this <laughs> later, therefore there's no condemnation for me because of that seraphim. That seraphim that, that points to the, the finished work of Jesus Christ for our redemption. That seraphim took that coal from that altar, the place of sacrifice, and he cleansed me from my sin. And we can see that event as representing all the saving benefits of Christ. And so was hopeful. Hopeful life changed because of God's gracious work. Listen to this. Hopeful said this, after being converted, never before had thoughts come into my heart that so clearly showed me the beauty of Jesus Christ. Before he had no concern about Christ at all, but now he's just captivated by the beauty of Jesus Christ. The beauty of a dying man on a tree who was put in a tomb and rose again. Hopeful goes on to say, it made me long to live a holy life and to do something for the honor and glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. I even thought that if I had a thousand gallons of blood in my body, I would sacrifice it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you something. Do you see a difference in Hopeful's life because of grace? This is the man who said, hey, I'm excited about worldly treasures. And this is a man who said, I enjoy sin. And grace wiped all of that away. What about you? 
as grace? Have you experienced that saving and converting grace that changes everything about you? Now, this is an amazing before and after. So much more amazing than my little house painting project. And the difference is grace. Every Christian has a testimony of God's grace. Your testimony of God's grace may be as an adult convert. And maybe you really do have a before where you were like hopeful or maybe you were like ignorance. But you were dead in your sin. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just was, came upon you and you're under conviction given the gifts of repentance and faith, and you were justified and were converted. And now you're living for Jesus. What, what a great testimony that is. But, but I want to mention this, because some here today would not have that testimony. Some here today, and by the way, I hope this is a large number in this room of this category of Christian. Some of you today may never really have such a before like hopeful or like others here in the sanctuary. You don't have that because you were raised in a Christian home. You were raised in a faithful church. From your earliest days, you remember hearing the gospel. You remember being confronted with the fact that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus is the Savior. And so you think, I mean, I've lived my whole life. I know I need grace, but yeah, I don't have that dramatic before. I've just always known I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And so you might conclude, well, I really don't have a very good testimony. I don't have any dramatic change like being a hell's angel <laughs> motorcycle rider. Uh, nothing against motorcycles. And all of a sudden, whammo, overnight God changes me and, and, and now I'm, I'm living for Jesus. I, I don't have that. I don't have a very good testimony. That is so far from the truth. First of all, if you fall in that category of a covenant child conversion like I've just described, you need grace just as much as hopeful needed grace. Just as much as anyone else needed grace. But I want to say that think about the testimony of God's grace in this way. God's saying that my, my hand is going to be upon this person from their earliest days. And I am going to put them in a believing home, in a, in a believing church, and they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to be confronted with their sin all the days of their life. They're going to know about Jesus, is that not grace? That God would favor someone to place them in a home and in a church where they hear the gospel? They still need to repent. They still need to believe. God still needs to regenerate their heart and they respond in repentance and faith. Yes, all of they still need grace. But my point is every Christian has a testimony 
of God's grace. And here's one point that I would just simply offer to you today. You know, we talk a lot about having a testimony, right? And, but we always talk about having a testimony in terms of evangelism. So when I go out to evangelize someone, then I want to be able to tell how the gospel has been woven into my story. And we should, and that's good, but that's not the only use of a testimony. Because remember what Christian and Hopeful were doing. They were both believers. And they were on the journey of the Christian life. And they said, hey, let's encourage one another by, talk, by, by talking about our story of God pouring out his grace, his converting, saving grace in our lives. And I simply want to challenge us. And maybe I'm thinking about some things, actually to challenge us in this way. I think we need to be telling our stories to one another about how God's grace has made a difference in our lives. The session is so encouraged every time that we hear a testimony. And as a church, we might need to reflect more on how we can encourage one another in small groups, even in worship, as we interface as the church family, to say, hey, hey, tell me. Tell me about when God began with you at your conversion. Share your story with me. You know, the Lord's table functions in a way like a testimony. It is a testimony of God's grace. It's more than that, but it is at least that. It, por it portrays the gospel story of Christ's gracious work on our behalf, that grace that makes all the difference for us. And I might suggest that even as we come by faith to this table in just a few moments, we're actually testifying to God's work of grace in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do commit ourselves to you. It's so good to hear stories of grace. May we never get tired of hearing how you work in the lives of your people. How you bring sinners from deadness to life in Jesus. How you work to use your people in ministry. May we never weary of talking about how grace has made all the difference in our lives. Father, we thank you for the abundance of your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand and take your hymnal, there's a, a hymn that's printed there, Not What My Hands Have Done. Again, just reflecting on God's grace, God doing something that makes all the difference in our lives. Not what my